This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Welcome to Amplify, the Australian Museum's regular podcast, where I get to chat to Australian Museum staff, specialists, scientists, all about the work they do here behind the scenes. I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO of the Museum, and today it is my great pleasure to welcome the fantastic Laura McBride, a creative producer in public engagement. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. It's good to have you here today because, of course, this week is NAIDOC Week in New South Wales, which focuses on Aboriginal people and particularly education in your case. Uh, you are an Aboriginal woman. Where are you from? Um, my family is from central west New South Wales. So my grandmother is a Wawaan woman from Galagambone in New South Wales. And my father was born on a place called Montkeela Bend in Walgett. And his father was a Uwalaroi man. His uh, mother was Nantopsy. And um, she gave birth to them around St George, which is all the same territory. And my father ended up being born on Montkeela Bend. Oh, wild. So you've got quite a big connection to your forebears. Yes, definitely. My, um, I was born in Sydney, but um, my mother migrated from England when she was 16 years old and met my family. And she moved to Sydney to become a nurse and my father followed her down here and I was born down here. So I spent nine months of the year down here with my mum uh, doing my schooling and then three months of the year in my community with my father. And that's where you really started to learn about your Indigenous heritage. Yeah, well, it's a, um, you don't really know you're learning about it. You're just immersed in it. And I was lucky enough to grow up between both societies. And um, that was difficult growing up um, with the two different worlds. But once I reached university, I realised that there was a special place to be able to communicate across um, both societies on different issues. So that must be difficult when you're a young woman growing up in modern society here with different value systems and then you go back to your community. What, what was the biggest change that you noticed um, about living in your, with your Aboriginal family? Um, you always want to go home. You want to spend time with family. It's much more family orientated and, um, you know, more interesting than the city and, you know, more connected there's um, more disadvantage, but you don't necessarily notice that when you're there. It's when you come back, you notice the differences. Um, I think it's the social expectations. So, for instance, something that's socially acceptable in one is not acceptable in the other. So just using the word um, bum, for instance, one day I used I used that word and someone said, oh, what's the correct term? And I thought, I was thinking to myself, oh, surely it can't be ass, you know, it, you yeah. know, and then I realised the correct term was bottom and that was the proper word to use. But, you know, just different social expectations, what's perfectly fine in one is not in the other. And then there's the expectation that when you're in Sydney, you're not, you're not black enough, you're not surrounded by black people, I, I look white. Um, so you get those stereotypes. And then because I've got a white mother, when I'm back in the community, people think that I have um, wealth because of that. But my mum was a single mother and a nurse, so that wasn't necessarily the case. But uh. you build... Um, resilience as you grow older and you become more educated and um, in the end it's ended up being a great benefit to me and it's how I've ended up being here and doing what I'm doing. So, Which, which is right. So let's talk about that. So after school you went to the University of Sydney. 
Yes, yes. So I went straight from school to uni and I enrolled in a Bachelor of Arts, but I always wanted to go to Sydney Uni. And um, when I enrolled on that day, I didn't realise I had to pick my subject. So um, I did that out of the book. I actually took philosophy in my first year, which I dropped very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you've got a different understanding of philosophy now out of that. And then, of course, after that, you went on and did a master's in education at UTS. Yeah. So uh, when I finished my undergrad degree, which is in psychology, which is a science degree, and then Australian Indigenous Studies, which is an arts degree, I fell into teaching at Tramby Aboriginal College and from there one of their board directors was working here, Cheryl Connors, the first Aboriginal educator in a museum and she got me at a graduation dinner and said, I heard you're a good worker, would you like to come and work in a museum? And I'd always wanted to work in a museum or an art gallery and so I took up that option straight away and um, came across and then I very quickly realised that I wouldn't like to work in an art gallery. And so the museum's a place for me. And, and that's quite an interesting thing because um, those outside of the sector may look at a, an art gallery and a museum as very similar sorts of organisations, but they're not, are they? Especially in terms of how we regard um, Indigenous heritage. Yeah, yeah, they're, ve- they're very different um, in what they do. Um, e- even between museums, I mean, we're quite different to the powerhouse being a science and technology and design museum versus us being a natural history museum. I'm much more keen on natural history museums and um, history. I I love uh, science, paleontology, uh, history. So all of those things always interested me. I didn't actually see them in relation to Indigenous culture. It wasn't until... In fact, my first visit to the Australian Museum, I came over with our Indigenous class and um, basically we were a bit... We thought, oh, is that all they have? We didn't realise that there was we only display less than 1% of what we hold. Mm. As an outsider, I didn't realise that. And so then coming in and learning about it and um, and seeing the different ways in which we could help improve not only the way Aboriginal people are represented within the museum, um, but start to have Aboriginal people control narratives for the benefit of the museum and also Aboriginal people. Because for a long time, they, these institutions have controlled... Well, they've held authority over the way Aboriginal people are perceived by the public and therefore they've controlled our social agency so years ago when we you know classified Aboriginal people as hunter-gatherers and whether we like it or not that sits in a system of advancement and um, the way in which we were portrayed here has left a distorted image of actually who we are with the general public and we have a really special place at this museum to be able to change that and so we're in really exciting times. We really do so how do you uh, grapple with that uh, the context of having a cultural collection and the natural science collections. Where, where is that bridge, that meeting place for you between those two collections here at the museum? Well, a lot of, um, a lot of the natural sciences collections can just be interpreted differently by Aboriginal people. In fact, a lot of the big problems that we're encountering as a human race um, can take advantages from looking at different perspectives, not just mainstream perspectives, so the different ways in which Aboriginal people have social and emotional relationships with the environment, for instance, could help us with climate change because our scientists have been talking about the devastating effects of climate change and what it's going to bring for 20 years and it just seems that people are not listening. Where's the disconnect between you know, scientists and the general public and, and people not listening um, to them and about how important this is for, for our lived futures? So are there ways that we can look at Indigenous ways of viewing the environment and start to incorporate them into the, into the Western world so that people start to look at things a little bit differently, um, connect to things a little bit differently? I think it's that connection to, to the land that we miss out on that Aboriginal people 
have so deeply inside them in their souls that that understanding and empathy with what's going on around them in nature that is a really important thing that we can learn so much more from Indigenous people about those those very issues. Yeah, I think there's a really large disconnection. Even um, today with some of our taxidermied animals, we had our event NADOC in Hyde Park uh, where we delivered our cultural programs to over 5,000 people. And uh, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, well, this this animal, this poor animal died. And, and we say, well, it, it most likely uh, died before it came here and we mm. just utilise the body for education purposes. But, I mean, you eat meat every day. And a lot of the kids are actually surprised that the steaks that they might eat at night actually come from an animal. There's just <laughs> this massive disconnection between um, how they behave every day and what they do and where these things come from and or, or even the waste material goes to. So there is a really big disconnection. Now, your ability to straddle both cultures, I think, and to interpret um, Aboriginal culture has really come to the fore because you co-curated uh, the Garigarang Sea Country exhibition, which is a permanent exhibition here at the Australian Museum. And it's a very special one because it's actually in the first person. It's, it's the story of Aboriginal people and the relationship to our waterways and oceans, but told by them. Can you tell us about how that, uh, that message evolved? Well, um, basically me and my co-curator, Amanda Reynolds, who um, wasn't just a co-curator, was actually um, a great mentor to me on the project. We had both been working in the museum space for quite some time and the first thing we wanted to do was tell the Indigenous narrative, uh, well, tell the Indigenous story by Indigenous people, so therefore it had to be done in first person. Every object and every story in that space um, came from the community itself. And so we worked with, um, we had quite a short timeline, so we actually worked with most people that we knew either um, through our personal lives or through our, our working lives, and we were completely guided by peers and elders. So everything I do, whether it's a program, an exhibition, a text panel, whoever I'm talking about or collaborating with needs to have a say, and that would include in the design and the from, from the very beginning to the very end. And so we're constantly guided by them. So first and foremost, I'm accountable to peers and elders, then I'm accountable to my managers and, and the museum. So everything is just as important, but because I'm telling somebody else's story, they have to be the first people that I work with and the first people that I work for. And since I've started working here, I'm, uh, I've had the privilege of meeting so many um, new community members and elders who have taken me under their wing, and, and I'm really building a huge amount of cultural knowledge here. So um, unfortunately for us in, in um, our areas, our culture has been systematically destroyed and we still have a lot and we're very proud of it and we're reviving a lot of it. But I've also learned a huge amount from, from other communities, um, which is just invaluable um, to me and very special. It's one of the things I really love about Garigarang Sea Country and Bailanura too, but in Garigarang you've managed to uh, portray historic objects that are held in the collection along with modern-day cultural objects. So it shows that the community, that this is a, a living, thriving culture, not one just from the past. And I watch tourists who come into the museum, and I think that they become very engaged in that, that this, you know, they might have read about Aboriginal culture in a brochure or a book at school, but suddenly they see that it's a living culture. Yes, that's right. I mean, only, I mean it's only really the Western world that puts a marker at 1788, and basically says we have to be everything before that point, which is not true because everything evolved every day. Um, if you were to come here in the in the 1500s and then record the 
Sydney language, for instance, and you came back in 1788, that language would be completely different. You know, people pass away, terms don't get used, new terms are created, new concepts. So there are particular stories that are endless and go on and on and on, but they're always told in in new ways. And so the culture is completely dynamic and we still are now. So it doesn't really matter if something was, um, if Aboriginal people did something a certain way pre-colonisation to post-colonisation, that marker is a Western marker. And and for us, it's a marker, a marker of the beginning of survival, um, where we've really had to try and maintain our cultures and our identities as well. Totally. Now tell me, Laurie, I mean, you're an educator, you interpret the culture here at the museum, you work with young people all the time, and as a creative producer, what have you got up your sleeve next? Well, this week is NAIDOC week, so we have actually have seven events in seven days. Um, so we had a sold-out talk with Travis DeVere's Lost Tales, with spoken performance, which was really beautiful and actually um, looked at that sense of his using traditional stories and contemporary experience to um, create a new world. And so that was a fantastic um, beginning to NAIDOC week. But coming up next on Friday, we'll be celebrating the launch of our Gambangia marine seasonal calendar. Um, which no, is, I love that because yeah. that's new in Garigarang. But that seasonal calendar has six seasons, doesn't it? Or has more? seven seasons. Seven. Yeah, it has seven seasons. And um, Is that because the um, Gadigal people here of the Eora Nation had seven seasons? I'm unsure how many... Um, seasons the Gadigal people had. Um, I'm not sure if that information is still around, but um, many Aboriginal communities have six seasons. It's just that Gambangia has seven seasons, and so they're from the mid-north coast of New South Wales. And um, this is a very special project because what happens is when you approach this screen, um, the calendar's on rotation and things come in and out of the environment. So we're teaching people to be a little bit patient and to look at the landscape for indicators that tell them what's occurring. And so um, it encourages people to be seasonal. Um, It looks at the connections between living things. So um, when a particular tree is flowering, the mullet might start running up the coast. Uh, Or when a particular uh, grub starts moving around in lines, it means that the oysters are good and fat to eat. And that's the best time to source those for um, not only protein and nutrition, but also to have least impact on the life cycle. Well, what a wonderful way to be able to connect with the local environment here in Sydney and right along the New South Wales coast than by coming to see Garigarang, which you help create, and also many of the other wonderful programs. Laura McBride, it's wonderful to have you working at the Australian Museum and for all the work you do here. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.